as your pastor, I see my job a lot like being a chef on that show, Chopped. You know what show I'm talking about? Uh, there's a lot of those food shows. But Chopped, I think, is, is one of the most unique. If you've never seen the show, what takes place is that competing chefs are given a basket of mysterious ingredients, mystery ingredients, that they have to then turn into this three-course meal. No doubt, this particular exercise tests their capacities, their creativity, their overall talent. They have no idea what's coming, but they have to whip it into something elegant. I hope you know that I take my job very seriously. Not only do you come to the table every Sunday morning ready to eat, and you guys so do. You come prepared, anxious to hear from God. But I work hard every week, throughout the week, to prepare a spiritual meal from God's word that I hope hits the spot. It's not something whipped together, thrown together. It's something that I pour time into. I pray that our studies, our time together in God's word is divinely inspired, creatively crafted. I, I pray that the messages are relevant, something that sticks with you and you might feel inclined to go out and share with someone else. Now, because it's our conviction to teach expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, there is an interesting challenge that I face every single week. And that is the fact that while I'm called to cook the meal with creativity, God every week provides a set of mystery ingredients. Different things every Sunday, whatever our text that morning happens to present. Honestly, this type of weekly challenge is why many pastors would prefer, instead of competing on Chopped, to maybe just be a, a cook at Applebee's. You know, instead of the creative challenge to work up a new dish every Sunday from different ingredients, many pastors prefer to rely on, you know, nothing more than a few go-to dishes that they've already mastered. And yet, while this does, admittedly, allow easy topical messages a pastor can deliver with skill and be consumed by the masses at large with minimal effort. Let's be honest. Applebee's is terrible. Really, I mean, well, okay, with the one exception of the Fiesta Lime Chicken, that's pretty good. But beyond that, like, yeah, you know what you're going to get at Applebee's, but it's going to be the same thing every single week. No creativity there. Now, now I, I bring this up, not to hammer on pastors that teach topically. There's some that do it well, but, but I do this to kind of set the stage for this morning's message because in my prep, it, it was really interesting. It was different. As I was studying and working on crafting a single dish with the ingredients that God had given me, it became clear that I had two concepts that would complement each other but no matter how hard I tried, I just couldn't get them to fit on the same plate. Like they complimented, but on the same dish, they just kind of clashed. They didn't really work well. Matter of fact, Tuesday night, I, I really gave up and went to bed, told Jessica, like, I have no idea where this Bible study is going. I've got two great thoughts. They complement, but they just, they don't work together. So this is what we're going to do. Instead of one dish with the ingredients, we're going to do an appetizer and then the main course. Like, that's going to be our approach this morning. I can't get them to fit on the same plate, so we're just going to give you two different two-course meal this morning. 
That's what you're going to get. So let's start with the appetizer. Really, this is the best way I could figure out to, come, to like put everything together. So just roll with it. Before we get back to our story in chapter 3 with the results of man's rebellion, I want to make another observation from chapter 2 that is of particular relevance to our text. Something that we haven't discussed, something we haven't brought up, but something that we can't overlook uh, or ignore. And before we do it, I, I do need to add just a quick disclaimer. If you haven't been with us in all of our travels through Genesis, as we've noted in previous studies, men and women... We're created by God equal, but distinctly different for the purposes of, of becoming complete and the oneness found in holy matrimony. When Eve was taken from Adam, there was in that moment forever a part of the man missing, only to be found in the woman. Now, if you look back over Genesis 2, you'll see an interesting order to things. We're told, and I'll just do this real flyby, God took man put man in the garden, commanded the man, you may freely eat, you shall not eat, you shall surely die. You with me? Then, after commanding the man in verse 18, okay, and that's where you might want to look, the command, you know, don't eat of that tree. You'll die if you do, right? It was then, following verse 18, that God determined that it's not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper comparable to him. Now notice, the evaluation by God that it was not good that man be alone, it came immediately after God had given Adam the command to be obedient to his word. I find that fascinating. Like it would appear right from the beginning of time that God knew that for Adam to remain obedient to his commands, that one command, he would be benefited greatly by having a righteous woman to come alongside to help him. Now, there is a simple reality that as part of God's very design, women do hold considerable sway over men. Not sure if you're aware of this. Get married. You'll figure it out. But in addition to holding sway over a man, women have an influence for that man to do good and sometimes to do evil. Like sadly, in our story, as we saw last Sunday, the woman Eve held such influence that following her rebellion, Adam made a decision, right? He decided that he would prefer to die with Eve then live alone in the garden without her. She gave him the fruit, we're told, and he ate. Now note, with this in mind, it makes complete sense while the serpent, Satan, would target Eve. She was the helper, Adam's helper. He needed her to be whole. You know, I can also imagine that if Adam had eaten the fruit first, right? Like, let's reverse this. So Adam eats the fruit and brings it to Eve. Like, it's probably likely that Eve would have been like, tough, bud. I'm cool without you, you know? Like, there was a reason that Eve was targeted because Adam's like, I can't do it without you, babe. If it had been the other way, Eve would have been like, dude, tough. I got this garden out of myself. Awesome. 
Isn't it true, think about it, that a woman, a woman settles a man to a certain degree? Like, isn't that a truth? A single man. Single men are free. Free to roam. A single man works for the weekend. Works hard, blows it all on the weekend. A single man's impulsive. He's passionate, even reckless. A single man drinks IPAs. And yet, when a woman enters his life, things immediately, what? They begin to settle down. A man's now home for dinner. He's saving for a secure future. A man sells the motorcycle more measured in his decisions. Like when a woman finally enters the picture, right? This ruly man, supernatural things begin to occur. He cleans himself up. He starts to shower frequently. He brushes his teeth. He shaves. If not, he at least grooms. Like a man who's married, a man with a woman, is more conscious about his health. I mean, good grief, a woman can even get a man to drink light beer. Terrible. It's why we say, you know, when we see someone, young man, sowing his roots, we say, man, that boy, he needs a good woman. That's why we say this. Because he does need a good woman. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many examples of men living godly lives without there being a woman behind the scene. You can look at the prophets, many of the apostles, Paul, great example. However, there is no doubt that a woman does exert a powerful spiritual influence over their man. It's why God is constantly throughout the Old Testament warning the children of Israel, what? Do not men. Do not marry these pagan women. Don't do it. Why? Because God knew full well that a pagan woman could turn even the godliest of men to idolatry. King Solomon, right? It was his, his, his wives that turned his heart from God. You know, Samson, such potential. What was his Achilles heel? Oh, Delilah. Even wicked queen Jezebel can be an example. Single men, here's my point. If your life is about following Jesus, the best thing you can do is to marry a righteous woman who is doing the same. It's the best thing you can do. I can also attest that nothing will hinder your walk with God quicker than hooking up with a gal who does not share the same pursuit. It's a truth. Single ladies, my single ladies. That was a Beyonce reference, but whatever. <laughs> While the same idea obviously applies, let's go kind of at a different angle. If your man, the man you're interested in, does not have a desire presently to attend church or to even really follow Jesus in the way that you want to, you need, you need to consider two things. One, why is he interested in you? If that's something that's a big part of your life, church and following Jesus and the things of the Lord, then why is the guy 
who has no interest in those things, like, like hitting on you. And two, if you can't influence him now, spiritually, you will likely never be able to. And take that as a word of warning. Now, married women, do not underestimate the spiritual influence you have on your husbands. You have the power to help him be the man that God has called him to be, or you have the power to cap him off at the knees. You can help him keep his eyes on heaven and his work to that pursuit, or you can push him to store up for you treasures on this earth. Treasures that break, corrupt, need fixing, repairs, batteries, require insurance, etc. Ladies, you can encourage your husband to, to fulfill God's call, and you can then help him carry the sacrifices, or you can selfishly supersede this calling with one of your own. You can enable your man to lead your home, or you can make that task so difficult. He'll simply advocate the job to you so he can go fishing. You can make his home a refuge or another battleground. You have that power. It's your choice. Consider this, that in her selfishness, even Sarah was able to convince the father of our faith, Abraham, to take God's promises into his own hands and sleep with the handmaiden, Hagar, the influence of a woman. Now, on a side note, if you're married to a man who isn't following Jesus and you don't feel like you have that type of influence, please don't lose heart. You are an influence. Whether you see it, whether you don't, you are an influence. It's a call. It's a truth, isn't it, that the most practical way that Jesus can reveal himself to your husband will be through the way that you live, the way you love, the way you pray, the way that you fill his home with a light from heaven, you have that power. Now, husbands, you don't get off the hook. My exhortation, a little different, still an exhortation. Not only did Adam fail in his God-given role of accurately communicating to his wife the truth, as we saw last Sunday, by omitting, amending, and tempering God's word. But you know, I had another thought as I was reading back through this text. You look at the first six verses of chapter three. Where's Adam? Like, where is he? Like, when this crafty serpent comes to his wife to tempt her, he's MIA, missing in action. Like, I'm struck by the reality that Eve was alone when faced with the temptation of the enemy. And whatever the reason, I can say this story does illustrate an important reality, fellas. Distance allowed by a husband with his wife will only create room for a crafty, sly enemy. So there's the appetizer. I hope it was all right. Now let's get to the main course. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? This transition then. And it's interesting to observe that the full consequences of sin seem to manifest not after Eve had eaten the fruit, but instead after Adam ate the forbidden fruit. In addition to Adam's willing decision to eat, unlike Eve, who had been deceived. We were told that in 1 Timothy 2.14. In Romans 5.12, Paul takes it a step further, stating that through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. Now, we'll get into this in more details next Sunday when we look at the curse. Now, what is important, though, for our purposes, is that following Adam, his eating of this forbidden fruit, we're told, quote, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The idea behind this, this phrase, that, the, that their eyes were open, the opening of their eyes, was that there was, it would seem, an immediate awareness of something in that moment that beforehand they had been completely oblivious to, mainly that they were naked. Now, keep in mind that God created man and woman with a triune nature, we are made up of body, spirit, and soul. Because the spirit provides physical life to the body and tethers the real you, the soul, to God. When God told Adam, and the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, it's likely that God was speaking of the death of man's spirit, the human spirit. Not only would their bodies experience an ultimate death as a result, but their souls, and the moment they ate this fruit, their souls were separated from God. This link through the Spirit to their Creator was severed the moment that, the moment that they sinned. Now, think about it. This idea of nakedness, it spoke and speaks of something much deeper than being in the buff. I hope you know that. It, it, it speaks to more than just being nude. For example, in verse 10, after clothing themselves with fig leaves, right? Adam and Eve still felt compelled to hide themselves from God. Why? Adam says it, because they were naked. Like it would seem that physical clothing failed to address the nakedness these two people were now experiencing. Because the spirit includes the seed of desire, or what we would refer to as one's nature, imagine just for a moment the physical effects of this internal awakening, the death of their soul, That's, I mean their spirit, the tethering away of their soul from God. The human spirit given by God, existing in perfect harmony with God, immediately upon sin's infiltration, this corruption, what happened? It flooded Adam and Eve's heart with feelings 
they had never before experienced. Fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil awakened within Adam and Eve, not an intellectual knowledge of what is evil, but an experiential understanding as to what evil yields in a person's life, in a person's heart, their spirit. For the first time, these two, they felt the effects of shame. Their hearts were flooded with insecurities, deep insecurities. In a very real way, in this moment, self, or what we would find defined in the New Testament as the flesh, was awakened in their bodies by their fallen human nature. Now, instead of the desire to please God or one another, at man's core was the desire to instead please himself. He was selfish, self-consumed, self-oriented. Indeed, man grew to see himself as God, without possessing the ability or power to effectively be God. It's interesting that as a response to this new awareness, Adam and Eve instantly felt compelled to sew fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. While many see and many Bible scholars will claim that this is speaking of man's instituting of religion, that these fig leaves were a way that man would seek to cover himself through his own works, so that he might stand presentable before God. Like that perspective. I think it's right, but for the wrong reason. Consider that while the effects of sin were felt internally in their spirit, and no doubt manifested in a sense of shame, we've all experienced it. You know that, that physical dirtiness, that feeling that you get? When you do something you know you're not supposed to, like, like you actually feel terrible, right? There's a dirtiness about it. For, for a time, Axe Body Wash played on that, that notion. If you ever saw their, their bottle, it was go out, get dirty, and it's guys partying, and then come and, and clean yourself so you feel better. Like they play on that human compulsion, that feeling, that shame, that insecurity, that dirtiness. So within Adam and Eve, there's a lot of things that are happening here. And yet I'm convinced that there was some type of physiological transformation that also occurred in Adam and Eve, which prompted their immediate desire for covering. While most Bible scholars claim that Adam and Eve had been oblivious to the fact that they were naked before becoming aware of their nakedness as a consequence of sin, what if, for a moment, go with me here, what if they felt naked because in that moment they were no longer as they were before? That in a sense, they felt naked because they were naked. In Psalms, well, to this point, in Genesis 2, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, right? And then in chapter three, we're told that they knew that they were naked. Note, in both instances, we have two totally different words for naked. The nakedness they had before sin is an entirely different nakedness than the, the one they experienced after sin. In Psalms 104 verse two, we're told that God, 
that God covers himself with light as with a garment. You see, I'm of the opinion that in creating man into his image and likeness, Adam and Eve had been initially clothed, not with anything that we would think of, an outer clothing, but an inward clothing, that they were clothed with the same light that God clothes himself with. That in a sense, in this perfected state whereby their spirit was free from the corruption of sin, their rightness before God manifested itself in a physical aura, a heavenly glow. Think about it. Moses spending time with God comes off the mountain. People are freaked out. Why? He's radioactive, man. His face is shining like the sun. So they make him put a veil over himself. And the righteous presence of God, it manifests in this outward shine. Stephen, as he's being stoned, looks to heaven. And what's recorded? His face, his countenance shone like the sun. They were naked and unashamed because they were clothed with this divine light emanating from their spirit. Then, though, upon the corrupting of their spirit by sin... What happened? The light went out. Explaining why immediately they fell naked and were compelled to clothe themselves. Think of it like this. There's Adam and Eve in the garden, this light glowing forth. They're naked, but they're clothed. They're unashamed. And then Adam eats this fruit, and boom, the lights go out of both of them. And Adam looks at Eve, and Eve looks at Adam, and they're both like, oh, snap. That's not good. Not not that they were new, but that they were no longer clothed with the righteousness of God. Which is why, what do they end up doing? Hey, let's, uh, let's get some fig leaves. Let's see if we can cover this up. Why? To conceal the fact they no longer had this light. It's kind of like they they cover themselves in fig leaves and Adam looks at Eve, Eve looks at Adam. They're like, you think it works? You think he'll notice? And Adam's like, no, like we are in trouble. Which then explains why what happens? They go and hide themselves. Like, think of it like this. Why do people wear black shirts? Do they wear black shirts to make themselves skinny or to conceal the fact that they're actually fat? This was a terrible morning to wear a black shirt. <laughs> like, is it the black, does it make you skinny? No, it hides your true state. If you're also wearing black this morning, I meant that as no slight. That was in the notes. Like, I didn't say that because you walked in this morning wearing black. It was a self-deprecating joke. That was the, anyway. The covering. The covering was not to replace what was lost. It wasn't to substitute for what was lost. The covering as I see it, was to hide what they had lost, this divine light. Now, why does any of this matter? 
understand, it wasn't as many suppose that Adam and Eve made themselves covering as a substitute for the divine light that no longer existed. But rather their intention was to hide the fact that they needed to be covered at all, that they had lost something. Ironically, when they quickly realized fig leaves would not, would not do, Fig leaves would would fail to conceal their true state, their true nakedness. They hide from the presence of God. You see, what many people miss is the fact that religion is more than a way in which man seeks to earn God's approval. Religion is much dirtier than that. It's much more destructive and, and, and evil. You see, religion at its core is a moral mechanism by which man seeks to conceal, to cover, or to hide his fallenness. It's not that I'm trying to earn God's favor. It's that I'm going to stand before God hiding the fact that I've lost something. Like fundamentally, religion fails to work. Like it fails to afford a man a way in which he can hide his true state. Many reason. I'm a good person. Why? Because I go and do all these things. Basically, the good things are to hide what? That they've lost the divine light of righteousness and they're not a good person. Yes, there's an aspect where I'm earning God's favor, but I'm concealing the fact that I don't have it anymore. Like this is what makes religion so dangerous. Not only does it seek to cover our sin with with our good works, but in doing so, this is what's so destructive. Religion further alienates people from God's righteousness. It's a poor covering. C.H. McIntosh correctly remarked, quote, religion will cause man to hide himself from God. And moreover, all all that his own righteousness offers him is a hiding place from God. Why were Adam and Eve hiding from God in the first place? Look at verse 10. Adam says, why were they hiding? I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Like there's three reasons Adam was afraid. First, despite his efforts to conceal what had happened by making fig leaf coverings, Adam knew, right, that those efforts had failed. Like Adam knew that these fig leaves failed to conceal the fact the light had gone out. Adam knew God would see right through the facade. That despite his best attempts, he was still naked. And there was no way he could fool God. So he he ran and he hid. Secondly, Adam knew that in order to respond to the call of God, he'd have to do something difficult. He'd have to acknowledge his true condition before God. Like to his credit, while it is the pride of religious moralism that keeps people in hiding and alienates them from God, Adam, Adam was willing to do something drastic. He was willing to humble himself by stepping out of the darkness to acknowledge before God his nakedness, his sin. He overcame his shame and came to God as a sinner in need of a savior. And that took guts. Finally, Adam was afraid because even with all of these things in mind, you can imagine he wasn't quite sure how God would react. 
You know, some people fear coming to Jesus will expose them for who they really are, which it does, actually. It's a necessary thing. But I have also found that other people are hesitant to come to God out of a fear of what he might do. Like, ironically, self-loathing manifests from the same source as pride, an unhealthy love of self. Like, in the case of Adam, I don't think his fear was God's judgment. I really don't. If God was, was going to kill him, if judgment was going to reign, it would have already happened. Like, I don't think Adam feared God's judgment. Instead, I think Adam was more afraid of God's rejection. That Adam feared because of his nakedness, God would now choose to have nothing to do with him. Like, I can't tell you how many people have used the same reasoning. There were people who have come and said, Pastor Zach, <laughs> like, I understand what Jesus has done. I'm, I'm not doubting that. I'm not, I'm not even resisting that. I, I'm aware of that. He came and he lived and he, and he died for me. I get it. I totally do. But, but he can't, he, he doesn't want to save me, Zach. Because you don't know all the things that I've done. Like, he might save you, but not me. Like, there's no way that because of all of the things that I've done that God could love me. Zach, I've heard people use this line. I, I'm really beyond saving. I had an abortion. I cheated on my husband. You don't know. God doesn't want anything to do with me. And people are afraid to come to God for God to say, you're right. I don't want anything to do with you, you dirty little sinner. That's scary. It's reason for fear. And while I can say this morning that it is essential that you must humble yourself and admit a need for a Savior, that you do have to step out of the darkness and your nakedness and shame and say, here I am, a sinner in need of a Savior, I can also say with 100% certainty that there is nothing that you've done or could do that God isn't big enough to forgive. The Bible from this point forward, gives you story after story after story after story of people who have done things worse than you and God still loved and in his grace, God still saved and in his mercy, God still used. Nothing that you can do can separate yourself from the love of Christ. Adam and Eve sense that they needed covering because the divine light had, had gone out. I hope you note know that that wasn't an incorrect feeling. And to their credit, they rightly understood that these man-made coverings they, they had fastened for themselves had failed to conceal that reality. The feeling like the, the light goes out, I got a problem. That's accurate. The sense that I just tried to remedy this on my own, that also failed totally in line with the truth. And yet, what I believe ultimately saved them was the fact that Adam was willing to overcome his shame. Adam was willing to put aside his fear 
Adam was willing to respond to God's calling and faith. Notice from our text, look at verse 8. We're told, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so in response to hearing that God, God had shown up, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. They hear the presence of God, they run and hide. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice. What an interesting question by God, right? Where are you? Like, like, please know, God doesn't ask this question because he didn't know where they were. Like, it's not as though that Adam and Eve were master hide-and-seek players, and they had really kind of caught the God of the universe, you know, off his game. Where God's like, where are you, man? I've looked everywhere. Like, that's not what's happening here. Also, it's not as though that God was unaware what had happened in the first six verses of this chapter. Like the all-knowing God was the last one to find out that they had eaten the fruit. Like not only did man experience this unlinking with his creator the moment he sinned, but it's a provocative but true thought that the God of the universe equally shared in the experience the moment it happened. Like man's rebellion yielded not only consequences for himself, but for the God and whose love he had rejected. God knew what had happened. He knew the light had gone out. He knew they had tried to cover themselves. He knew they had hid. He knew where they were hiding. The question is not to, to ascertain information. It really is an amazing reality, though, that following the recent developments, that God came to Adam and Eve at all. Like that to me is, is the most shocking aspect of the story, that God came in the cool of the garden at all. Can you imagine when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and the light goes out, God senses this, like his disappointment, his anger even? What about his hurt? Like what had God done to warrant such rejection? He had created the world for man's enjoyment. He had given man this garden and a woman to enjoy it with. He had filled the garden with, a, with trees and, and a river that man would be satisfied by and delight in. You would have thought, right, that God's abundant goodness would have been enough for man to obey the one command aimed at protecting him from death. How confounding, right, that man would do such a thing. If God had reacted as you and I, <laughs> Adam and Eve would have been toast. At, at worst, I would have just in that moment dissolved the universe into nothing without blinking an eye and would have just simply moved on to whatever I was doing before I decided to create this mess. In my most benevolent act, maybe I would have just, you know, cut Adam and Eve off left them to deal with the results, found something else to occupy my time with. And yet, the reality is that God does the exact opposite, doesn't he? Like knowing full well what he'd find, God came to the garden, why? 
for information? No. He came in order to seek Adam and Eve. While it's true that in creation, the full power and majesty of God was on display, and that in forming the man and the woman and the oneness they'd find in marriage, undeniable truths about God were communicated. We've looked at these things. Understand, please understand. It was in his response to man's sin that God was provided a chance to reveal the most radical aspect of his nature. I could have stolen the whole concept, but I'll just give you a quote from C.H. McIntosh who makes this observation concerning these three words. Where are you? He writes, this question proved two things. Man was lost and that God had come to seek. Man was lost But God had come down to look for him, to bring him out of his hiding place behind the trees of the garden. This was grace. God seeking a sinner. Where could this aspect of God be displayed but in a world of sinners? God at the first came down to create. And then when the serpent presumed to meddle with creation, God came down to save. There is no doubt These three words, where are you, had to have spoken volumes to Adam. (laughs) It's what moved him from his shame and fear into the presence of God, from the darkness into the light. These three words must have told him that God had not come to the garden as a judge, but as a heartbroken father. God was not seeking to destroy. God had come seeking to save. God was looking for them. His love had not changed. While man knew full well the consequences of his actions, God came to the garden. Why? To make first contact. To let man know he wasn't alone. And notice, while man was in hiding and God busy seeking, what a picture. It was God who spoke first. You notice that? Man hiding, God seeking, God speaking. God knew of man's condition. God knew of his fallenness, of his sin, of his shame. And in his grace, God amazingly waits not for the man to come to him. But rather, it is God who speaks and calls for the man. God was the initiator. And Adam, in faith, was willing to respond to the care he must have heard in that voice of God asking, where are you? This morning, I can't help but think that God might be making the same appeal to some of you. He might be asking the same question. Where are you? Understand, while God is the seeker and he's the initiator, while there is no reason to hide because he knows who you really are, and he calls out the same, God is a gentleman. He calls with a question, and what had to happen? Adam still had to step out. He still had to respond. 
Would man in that moment hide in his religious pride, knowing that God alone possessed the power to unmask his true condition? Would he hide fearing the rejection of God over the things he had done? Or would he respond to God's voice when he said, where are you? In conclusion, God's plan for fallen man was never to provide him a covering, but restoration. You know, a dead man is a dead man no matter how alive you make him appear. Because of sin, the light of the Spirit went dark in the hearts of man. No amount of covering would ever be able to fix this. And yet, God's plan for man had always been to do what? To restore that divine light. To put it back inside. To put it back in you. How? Through a revital revitalization of your spirit through the indwelling of God's. How interesting, how interesting is it that Jesus, he calls himself what? The light of the world. In in multiple places, he uses this imagery of the light. Like even to the point that he then describes his followers, Christians, as being what? Light bearers, bearers of this light, this divine light from God's righteousness. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said this. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but, and I love this phrase, have the light of life, something I would possess, something I'd be clothed with. Then in Matthew 5, verse 16, he told his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, friend, upon salvation, an amazing thing takes place, a reversal of what we see here in the garden. The human spirit of darkness is replaced with the Holy Spirit of light. You are indwelt and regenerated by the Spirit of God. No longer are you naked as you've been clothed with a heavenly righteousness found only in Christ Jesus, a spiritual clothing that manifests in our hearts and works outwards in a real, tangible, physical way. You, friend, have been filled with a light that is designed to shine through you and be seen by others living in a dark world. That's why Jesus would say, anyone who has a light doesn't hide it. Which is why religion for the Christian is so insulting. Because it's religion that does what in the heart of a Christian? Causes me to try to cover a light I already have. I have no need to hide it. I should let it shine. There's no need to conceal it. I'm not hiding anything. I'm a dead man walking. I'm alive because God's spirit has been put inside of me. Nothing I could have done could have caused that to happen. But one thing, I heard God's voice and I stepped out of the darkness. I let him see me as I am and he saved me. He saved me. Isaiah 61 verse 10, the prophet declares, for this fact, I will greatly rejoice My soul shall be joyful in my God. And here's why. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. 
In conclusion, may I ask you just a simple question? Where are you? 